I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. Very quickly, thank you very much if you've taken a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to a friend. We have been uh, gaining some listeners and some subscribers to The Secret Show as well. Uh, if you have not checked it out yet, go to sleerickets.substack.com. And uh, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of fun uh, Secret Show episodes on there in which I say even sillier things. And uh, we have some of the some of the uh, more unguarded or or tired outtakes from uh, from interviews and conversations, uh, including probably the second half of this conversation, which will which should be up there later on this week. So, what I've got for you tonight is a. <laughs> Theoretically, this is a conversation which Cameron and I were supposed to talk about. Iris Sadoff's essay, Neoformalism, A Dangerous Nostalgia, as well as Brian Bridger's essay, uh, To Crawl Under the Earth, The Persistence of Expansive Poetry, and a Jeffrey Hill lecture called What You Look Hard At Tends to Look Hard at You. As you can probably guess, this was too much and too poorly organized a set of topics. I only read half the, the sat off essay and we we got derailed in some, some <laughs> amusing and potentially uh, uh, dangerous directions. Cameron shits on like half of the contemporary poets that I love. Uh, I accidentally picked a fight with all Freeverse poets. Gerard Minley Hopkins makes a dramatic return. It's uh, it's a it's a lot of fun, and it does end, as I said, somewhat abruptly because the second half uh, is just too, it's too it's too much. So that'll go up probably on the Secret Show feed uh, pretty soon. I think you will. I think you'll like this one unless you hate it. I should say I've already I'm already planning to have at least a couple of the people that Cameron shits on. Uh, I'm planning to have them come on the show. At which point they will be more than welcome to take all the pot shots they would like at an undernourished 19-year-old English college student. So um, apologies in advance and uh, and thank you to everybody mentioned in this episode. I, If it's not clear enough, I think we really disagree about a lot of this stuff. Also, the, the subject of this episode, much of which is new formalism or even sort of new new form, like the 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 second and third and fourth generations of new formalists that has been uh burning up the substack chat for the last week or two so if you if you've not yet joined the secret show or if you have and you've not yet looked at the the substack chat give it a try it out or if you're lurking and just enjoying the show then uh continue to to enjoy and lurk and get good uh, booze recommendations from ethan uh with that, let's get to this week's show. Fucking Cameron. So we have we have a few things to talk about. You have this sort of this uh, bone to pick with new formalism and and maybe like specifically new formalism today or or something like that. But then you also. Um, sent me or you you recommended that I listen to Jeffrey Hill's uh lecture on the Windhover, the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. Actually I think we I probably overreacted slightly by by sending you the whole lecture. I the part of the lecture that was relevant um to the neo formalist 
part of our discussion is just um, a patch where Hill discusses um, Hopkins' criticisms, uh, criticisms in, a le- in a letter he sends to um, uh, Robert Bridges, where he talks about uh, he d- he discerns different types of poetry, and one of them, in in one of the um, types of poetry he discerns, he talks about uh, the uh, the Parnassian style, mm. which is I found quite by accident as Hill likes to talk about how he finds a lot of things by accident I found quite by accident a beautifully accurate description of most metrical poetry written in, in English for the last 20 years in Hopkins the Parnassian style but I think the rest well, of the re- lecture re- re- remind me what he what he how he characterizes that because that's so, that did not leave a strong impression yeah so the the main the the beautifully eloquent and compressed phrase Hopkins uses um to describe the Parnassian style is poetry draped in oh sorry poetry draping prose sport which is mm. i think an incredibly accurate description of the type of poetry hopkins is referring to to bridges which is um well most famously tennyson and a few other poets we've generally completely forgotten but also nowadays is a completely accurate and mostly encompassing description of most of the particular darlings of uh, darlings of the new formula and also, okay. to be honest, most poetry written in any form right. of pattern being composed now. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Iris Adolf in this essay does complain about several things about new formalism, and, and there 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 are like a few conflations. But like then he 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 uh, acknowledges at one point like that like this is most of these criticisms apply to all American poets. But like the problem okay. is mostly like all American poets, and he's just sort of focusing on the 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 neoformalists so you um do you want to state your larger thesis about kent and, and you're and you're you're saying it's not just the average poem or most poems in written in form because most poems written in form like most poems written in any uh mode are are going to be mediocre at best right i mean like mm-hmm. that's the yeah yeah um there's maybe well. there's like maybe a higher baseline of like a certain kind of very limited technical competence among formal poems because they at least have to be in form but certainly but like most of them are going to be nothing worth remembering Mm -hmm. but you're saying it's actually like the it's the favorites it's the stars of the neo-formalists and and in like whatever you call the current you know we'll talk about this other term for for a broader category including formalists but but like the people who are who are most celebrated today for writing in traditional meter and rhyme regular meter and like like a i would say like a um to distinguish formal the formalist taste for rhyme it tends to be more consonant than assonant like like rap and pop music and and spoken word tends to lean on assonant rhyme when there's a slant and formal literary page poetry however you want to call it uh, um, leans on consonant rhyme um, for like various historical and conventional reasons. But like right, those I just, people, I yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So I just add what I've noticed recently is that is completely true. Apart from poetry and translation, which mm. typically seems to rely more on um, assonantal rhymes or vowel rhymes more than it does on consonantal rhymes, I think. Poetry and translation, like yeah. the the English versions of translation. Yeah, the English poetry. versions of translated poetry. Okay. I've noticed this a lot with um with a uh, Mandelstam recently in translation mm. by uh, Peter France and um uh Alistair Noon and also 
Sasha Dugdale's translations of Maria Stepanova both mm. seem to me uh, as much run on vowel rhymes as they do on con consonantal rhymes. But apart yeah, from that, you're completely right. Right. Well, and, and interestingly, like A. Stallings, who's quite scrupulous about her rhymes, uses consonantal rhyme a lot and occasionally will use like a, a, a jokey rhyme or like a non-sonic rhyme. But for the most part, she's she she avoids purely assonantal rhymes. She will, in her translations, get looser. And part of that mm. may just be allowing herself more room because she's got these other constraints. But she mm. will allow herself yeah. kind of rhymes we might associate with rap or pop music in in her translations. I do also wonder, and this is this is always like I think you could do kind of an interesting study of like which poets who wrote in form get translated into form versus which ones get translated into free verse. And I think I think you you learn something about like Baudelaire. Uh, at least until recently, seldom got translated into free verse, partly because of the kind of people who read Baudelaire, whereas Rilke was always translated into free verse. I didn't even know he wrote in meter and rhyme until much later because the kind of people who picked up on Rilke tended to translate into free verse. So I wonder somewhat about like how much of that is taste and like the source. Even um, yeah. Nathan, uh, Nathaniel Rudofsky Brody's um, translation of Paul Valery is in... He writes in meter, but not he 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 doesn't um, use rhyme, which was sort of surprising to me. But yeah, I, I wonder how much of that is. Yeah, I think I feel like there, there's like a bunch of conflating factors there. Yeah, in, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. So so to just try to, to create this sort of category. I know you've got a you've got a, a rant against page poetry that we can get to as well, or against the the, the classification <laughs> of page poetry. But like, if we for the moment adopt that as a category, right. page okay. poetry, formal poets, however you want to call them you would say that not only most of them, but most of the best ones of those or the most celebrated of those are have a fundamental uh, deficiency in their poetry. Is that fair? Yes, yes, exactly. I've got some quotes from okay. people who I, who I won't name because several of them are on a rate of swear and one of them is quite famous. <laughs> who basically played out my argument, put my argument very, very nicely. Okay. But um, I'll read that later. Well, I can read that whenever, but... Yeah, basically, I think that the um, the big names in neo formalism and the uh, the new formalists, and I'll name names because why not? Like R. S. Yeah, Quinn, yeah, yeah, yeah. parts of Quinn, David, okay. parts of David Mason, almost all of Aaron Puchidian, um, some parts of A. E. Stallings, with I think a good amount of exception, are to me very not even badly written, but prosaic and lacking in a basic understanding of what, in my view, poetry should be. Well, maybe tell us what poetry should be. This is, actually, I'm going to use all my quotes right now because they just, they lay out my view really nicely yeah, yeah. and they work well together. Sure. This is a quote by um, a poet I know. We're talking about the popularity of Aaron Pugitian's poetry. His, okay. his, I should say his personally written poetry. I think on a slight differently note, I think Aaron Pugitian is, is a brilliant translation, uh, translator and his uh, translations of Sopho and his new Baudelaire are both very good. I think I think that that is where he and to be honest, a lot of other new new formalist poets really excel as, as translators of a writer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And he and he is extremely prolific. I mean, he writes first novels. Yeah. He writes his own lyric poetry. He translates. He does. He translates epic poems as well as lyric poems. He's he just has an extraordinarily large output for any poet. Mm -hmm. So this is what a um, poet said. Um, what the poet I was corresponding with said about Puccini and moved on. To poetry 
in meter and rhyme generally in English. He says, I can't explain why Puchidian is so beloved, but my general feeling is that much of that world, the world populated by the descendants of the first wave of new formalists, is populated by people who don't actually understand poetry, not really, though they can make sense out of certain things and they over uh, out of certain things they overpraise and over reward poets who make sense to them so somebody like Puchidian becomes a big deal he's nothing if not easy to make sense of and this is the um the first point i'd like to say that there is a sort of a priding of um the term accessibility in the essay we might get to talking about one yeah. of the big goals of um, new formalist poetry is it should be accessible now i think i've already spoken about how i don't feel accessibility has any any sort of or it, at least not much at all to do with poetry and I, I don't understand what accessibility of style really means because accessibility is such a relative term that even a very crystalline a crystallinely clear style would not be accessible to some people depending on cultural background and, and certain factors so i think accessibility is a kind of myth anyway but certainly to me, it seems to be that in most new formalists, accessibility boils down to the Parnassian impulse again. That is that their poetry expresses prose, their poetry is prose, but dressed up in meter and rhyme, which to them defines and makes, makes poetry what it is. There is nothing in them to me that is good poetry does, which is when language is turned as a means and an end in itself and upon itself. Um, Toby Martinez de las Rivas once said that good poems should um, uh, show language deepening and, deepening and complicating itself. And I do not feel that any, or at least most of the new formalists, and certainly the, um, the big central figures in the new formalists who propagated the whole idea of a poetry movement called new formalism, I do not believe that they do that. They, 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 they drape prose thoughts and often sort of very... I think socially conservative thoughts in sort of this in rhyme and meter. And then um, this brings me on quite nicely to my second quote, which is from Anoratus Ferrian, who I correspond with a lot. He says, um, I saw an interesting exchange on Facebook. Actually, I accidentally set it up. A friend posted some Ted Hughes poems and made a statement that he was a better poet than, uh, than Sylvia Plath. I commented that I love Crow. It, um, if you don't know, Crow is a book by Ted Hughes and didn't want to get into the Hughes-Plath discussion. Then Sam Gwynn, R.S. Gwynn, commented, commented that Crow was trash because he didn't believe a human could ever write from a Crow's perspective. They don't value imagination. That is at the heart of new formalism. I, c I can understand your goal. Uh, he's talking directly to me here. I can understand your goal to write a different type of poetry in meter, a poetry that does um, that does ask for the help from the imagination, but it but it will keep you on the outside. You don't want to be on the inside anyway. When new formalism started over here, back in the late in the late years of the twentieth century, the iambic brigade swept out in a campaign to destroy non-met poetry. Seriously, their goal was to drive free verse out of town. They seem to have no concept of why it happened. They just blamed it on uneducated poets like Whitman, who did not know better than to write in his long, um, his long biblical lines. They also fought many 
free verse poets couldn't write a real poem. Free verse had opened the doors to the common people. There was a definite political slant to it. Many of them were right-wingers. And then he goes on to say, John Whitworth, RIP, said that Larkin had put an end to modernism. Um, he says, I like Larkin, but I don't think he was a great poet. He is too superficial to hold my interest for long. That is my correspondent. That is not what John Whitworth said. John Whitworth, right. John Whitworth said that he thought Larkin, Larkin had put an end to modernism. Right. Okay. I mean, they just it feels like there's so many whirling considerations here. Like, for one thing, I mean, I don't know Crow as well as as some of Hughes's other books. I, I don't. I like Hughes. I, I don't recall what I've read of that being like standing out in particular as being my favorite. But I also think like Sam Gwynn is a is like a delightful guy. That just seems like a very silly thing to say. Like to say that the problem with this book is that a human can't imagine a crow's perspective. Like what? Like this is just like part of the literary tradition is like imagining animals and gods and all sorts of things. Like in the in the Brian Berger essay, Marilyn Nelson has a whole a whole sonnet she writes from the perspective of a tree. You know, fa fairly successfully it would seem. So yeah, I mean, I think like that's a very silly comment. In the same way that in the Iris Adolf essay, he. He cites this this um, anthology called The Direction of Poetry, edited by Robert Richman, and Richman explicitly um, excludes, uh, let me find the, the passage that just blew my mind. It seems so stupid. The anthology honors versifiers like Blumenthal, Lighthouser, and Hollander and excludes W.S. DiPiero and Norman Williams because, quote, such poets have an ambivalent attitude toward meter moving in and out of it in their poems, unquote. What, huh? They ex he excludes these poets because they sometimes don't write in meter and they don't, and they, they're not chauvinists for meter. They're not meter partisans. Like that seems like a crazy criterion. Those instances, instances where like new formalists say poetry ought to be in meter, like all poetry ought to be in meter or the, the free verses should be run out of town or... Or like, I mean, I don't even understand what Sam is saying when he says like a human can't imagine a crow. Like what? Huh? Like that stuff is so silly. But it also seems to me like not neither essential to new formalism or formalism, and nor especially like predominant as a way of thinking among people who write in form. Let's go back to Crow a minute. I think maybe, and I obviously I'm again a uh, ambivalent witness and a witness who wasn't present for this actual debate. But I think maybe the whole argument over Crow stems from the fact that while maybe poems, and I, again, I haven't read the Nelson poems, but I suspect the Nelson poems will be trying to maybe personify a tree in a way, while um, Crow is very much an attempt to speak in, well, first it's supposed to attempt to speak in sort of a very folkloric or mythic language. And secondly, I think it's an attempt to reach to a point of sort of violence and brutality that is beyond typical sort of um, human thought patterns. I mean, it's certainly personifying Crow, but it also repeatedly emphasizes Crow's sort of burdenness. So in a way, sure. I think Hughes is attempting to do something more sort of animalistic in those poems than many sort of poems describing yeah, oh, um, nature sure, might sure, be. Sure, sure. But also, like, in the end, I don't especially care what his project was. I care what the poem amounts to. Like, whether or not he's successful course, in imagining... Yeah. In imagining how crows think, who knows, and I don't care. What matters is like, is this an effective poem? 
Well, yeah. Well, he's never going to be successful at imagining what crows think because I doubt crows think true. in he's any told... way that we can put into language. But... Yeah, certainly not in English. Yeah. Mm. But Among he has, I think Crow is Hughes' best book on a slight tangent. And I think Hughes did an incredibly, he made some incredible poetry that I think is going to last for centuries. I, I, I'm not sure much of the rest of Hughes' career amounts to anything as well as Crow. But um, I think maybe that was why Sam Gwynn or R.S. Gwynn, however you want to say it, um, you know, that's maybe why R.S. Gwynn went, went after Crow as a certain text more than he might go after other formless poems. And also the fact that, I mean, not to insult R.S. Gwynn too much, but Crow is written in a free verse influenced by Eastern European poets like Zbigniew of Herbert, um, some poet, Polish poets. It's not the most formalist piece of writing in the world. So, um, is, is the, start, was there an argument about it being written in form? Like that didn't seem to come up in that exchange. No, but I mean, is there? Are there? I have not encountered R.S. Gwynn praising any poet who is not who does not write in form. Yeah, I remember when um, Louise Gluck won the uh, the Nobel Prize. He went off, uh, attacked her. I get I, I get the sense from R.S. Gwynn and the anthologies he edits that he is quite a strong neo-formalist. And I, from the poems I've read, I I also get that sense. Okay, so and there, and there, it feels like there are there are maybe three different possible definitions of neo formalist, including some like some people, and of course like again again with the exception of Shane McRae and like a, maybe a few other people, most people I know who write in meter and rhyme don't especially seek out or embrace this designation but but even you know within poets you might call formalist or neo-formalist today it seems like you could mean one of three things one you could mean like someone who writes sometimes or mostly in meter right like that like you could just mm -hmm. mean that by which standard like you would also be a formalist because you write but i, I don't understand. maybe half the time in meter you know right but um, i don't understand why one would wish to term oneself that well no no but i think most don't like that's what I'm saying. Like I think, I think, and I think like that's actually part of the. I, I think Brian Brian Bridger's essay is is quite smart, but I, I think like one of my qualms with it is that like like members of movements who espouse names of movements, it seems like are are usually making a mistake. So yeah, yes. I, I think like if you, but if one were to use this designation to apply to anybody, the 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 loosest definition would be like someone who writes sometimes or mostly in meter. Mm -hmm. um, even Alan Shapiro, who writes mostly in free verse, has been called a new, new formalist because he writes sometimes in meter. I mean, really, sometimes, sometimes. And then maybe like the next more restrictive definition would be like someone who uh, writes, you know, sometimes or mostly in meter and prefers poetry in meter, right? Like you, you prefer, you like it better. That's your cup of tea. That's, uh, you know, that's what you enjoy. And then the more yeah, restrictive definition would be you, you write in meter, you prefer meter, and you, in fact, are a partisan for meter. You think like metrical poetry is better from some like larger objective standpoint, not just from a personal preference, not just as a personal preference. And you you even like think most poets should be learning meter rather than free verse, right? It seems like those are three degrees of formal new formalism. And I mean, I I know plenty of people who fall into the first category and uh, and into the second, and like I, I'm probably you know gun to my head. I probably prefer metrical poetry over non-metrical poetry, but but I certainly am not a partisan for it. Uh, and then I, I think like it's mostly this 
like certain members of this older generation who are really partisans for for formal poetry. And then maybe within that, there's there's a like there, there's a further distinction between those who think like, hey, it's probably a good idea to learn meter if you're going to write poetry for your whole life. Like it would be helpful probably to learn meter versus yeah, yeah, place versus me like you must learn yeah. meter and that's the best way to write and you should only write it. Like that that's a you know, those are different things. I again I tend to think like if there are other tools you can use, and this is where, like, I think Iris Sadoff and a lot of a lot of like defenders of not defenders of free verse, but but uh, uh, attackers of formalism are really full of shit. Is when they say things like he says, like, but American poetry contains many different meters, many different ways. It's like the problem is, it's like when people say, like, well, that's Western medicine is too limited. You think, like, well, the thing about Western medicine is like if you can prove that something works, then it will become part of Western medicine, and like if you have another kind of meter then like formalists love that shit. Like if you have another, a new kind of meter that you want to include, like, like, holy shit, any formal nerd I know would love to learn what your new form of meter is so that he can try it out. So like the idea that new formalism, like is, is, is restricting is like, it's like excluding different meters just seems like a, like a silly nonsensical statement. Isn't the problem there that he's using the term different meters to mean basically different free verse rhythms? Apart from the strictly pattern to that uh, exact, exact, sorry, accentual syllabic pattern. Yeah, Isn't honestly, a- I don't know, and and I even I'm skeptical of of Brian Berger when he says like he says like well the new narrative poets didn't always write in meter but they wrote in 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 strictly controlled free verse and I I am I do think there's a lot of variety possible within free verse I I think that we honestly I think a lot of formalists a lot of younger formalists are are reflexively democratic in saying oh yeah you can have lots of different patterns going on in free verse yeah who knows yeah okay of course and like i just i very seldom seen people like like sit down dust off their hands and like show me what that actually means like i think in many cases it's just a way of saying like sure 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 yeah no of course you free verse can be lots of things i think like sure it can but like the more it becomes this pattern or that pattern the more it resembles a meter even if that meter is like loose sprung rhythm or you know accentual uh, meter, it, it I, I think often that is just a that's just a, a diplomatic gesture. I th- I think you're partially right. I think there are certain pans in free verse one can demonstrate quite easily. I think I'm thinking especially of the uh, the Whitmanic line and also maybe the Blakeian line, which are very long lines, mm-hmm. Whitman, yeah, both yeah, yeah. being sort of biblic der- biblically right. derivative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can demonstrate that quite easily in free verse. But I, I like also really think long it, lines, long lines versus short lines. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, yeah, yes, but also I think the Whitmanic line has a certain biblical incantatory rhythm to a lot of it that I think you could, yeah, you can quite easily explain. And yeah. I think you could make a rhythmic difference between that and the Blakeian line, which is also very long, but is also slightly closer to um to a fourteener or a, or a hexameter than it is to than Whitman's lines are. But I, I think um, I think you are certainly right that it, it becomes very hard to demonstrate rhythm, rhythms that are as scientifically provable as meter is. But I also think that any good free verse is in itself rhythmic. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it depends. <laughs> like, well, no. Again, like I think like that's that's one of those statements. Is like it's very easy to say like. Sure, sure, man. Like, why Why would you die on that hill? Like, why would you fight somebody over that point? I'm, and I'm not even dying on that hill. I'm just saying, like, personally, I've all, every time I hear that, or even every time I say that, because I often say stuff like that, 
inside i think like yeah but maybe not really like, <laughs> just, <laughs> i don't know like it just i it just have so seldom seen people actually demonstrate that i think like alan shapiro has a a, a somewhat useful distinction that he makes between what he calls what he calls enjammed free verse and phrasal free verse, which, you know, you can argue about whether he should be using those terms, but he means basically like free verse that that honors the integrity of the line or the phrase or the clause versus free verse that sort of violently disrupts, you know, the, the syntax of the sentence. And like, that is a meaningful distinction. But again, it's, it's a distinction like that's only parametrical because it's also, it's a syntactical distinction. It's a, you know, it, I think like, Distinctions in you know what what meter does that is pretty noteworthy at least what traditional meter does and again traditional meter of many different kinds long you know quantitative accentual accentual slab, even the what we call like the the conventional stodgy English tradition is itself a hybrid is itself a mud like what that does that is noteworthy is that it is measuring language using only sound and then obviously there are many other things going on but like there is at least this perpendicular dimension of like how long is a line and I can I can give that answer in 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 units of sound without without reference to the content of the line not to say that those things never work together or work against each other but I think that that like many it's like the same reason I get kind of irritated or like not even irritated just like bored by uh by like metrical devices that say like what if you have a certain number of words in a line yeah, let's say grammatical meter. That's actually that's still not like sonic meter. It's a, I mean, which is fine, but it's more like a it's like Sudoku. It's like a word puzzle, um, or like how many letters are in the line. I think like again, it's you're 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 fiddling with typography at that point rather than rather than listening. And I think like if you're going to talk about meter as a way of measuring lines of verse according to units of sound, then I think like. I, it's not that I don't believe that free verse can have varieties of a measure, varieties of length. It's just that the the more you begin to be able to define them, the more they resemble meter. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. You're right in that. Is as I say, if you if it becomes scientifically provable, it is a meter. Yeah, I, I, I think in free verse there is a collision between pure sound and grammar that forms a rhythm. There's a, mm -hmm. a grammatical sonic um complexity or intertwining that becomes sure. part of the rhythmic texture of the poem and i don't think that is by itself a defect i mean as i say it it sounds no, to be no, very no, yeah. very exciting exciting idea i, I was yeah. thinking that when you were talking about how in, in you create a meter with words and not sound i was thinking a way of like um getting past that would be to like um have a rule that one should have i don't know like three consonant or like uh, like 10 consonants in a line or something like you you could yeah. have some grammatical rule demanding word that also has an impact on sound. But yeah, your your general point is you're you're correct on the general point. Yeah, or, but, or like I mean, you know, uh, uh, um, Mary Jo Salter talks about um, accordion rhyme with Emily Dickinson, and I think like th there are interesting restrictions you can use. You you can you can um, uh, apply using like other forms of sonic repetition, even like. Ryan, in some of his more recent sonnets, he adopts like a a, a a tradition which does exist elsewhere, but not very very often, of poems that are strictly rhymed, but of irregular line length and no iambic regularly. Like the lines are effectively free verse, but they all rhyme regularly, so they 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 vary wildly in length and in pattern, but there is still some sort of sonic measure to them. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Ishin Hutchinson has a very good poem um, called The Orator that does that. But yeah, no, I, I, I see that. I mean, that's the closest poetry sort of comes to rap, isn't it? Because, I mean, rap obviously has its own, not meter, but uh, sonic constraints. But that yeah. is set down on the page is very much like the type of poetry Ryan is writing in those sonnets there. Yeah, but but again, I mean, as, as, like, as I think I, I was excited by your observation that I talked about in the secret show that like, I think it is really that like the the true metrical restriction is the delivery. Like if you can deliver it in such a way that it feels like those four beats, then it counts. But it still does have to like that is still a measure, right? It just may be a measure that's unique to your particular delivery. Yeah, and it's also a measure unique to the bar length of a t particular track, right? I mean, the the rapper is basically operating against the constriction of the bar, which is yeah. in rap the sort of the poet the version of the poetic line. So yeah, 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 yeah. But it's but it like it's not. Whereas like in in conventional accentual Slavic meter, you know, there's there's some disagreement, there's some variation, but like mostly you can scan a line fairly objectively. You can't. That's, that doesn't apply in rap because in order to scan it, you need the delivery, right? Like like there are lines yeah. of Aesop yeah. rocks that would not scan if you were just doing it on the page. But it's in his delivery that they actually fit the line they fit the length right 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 yeah yes yeah that that yeah and w word morphing as well will <laughs> also sort of will help with rhyme a little in rap which you don't have obvious in poetry written down so maybe we should because we've been scanning around it a lot maybe we should introduce the essay by brian um yeah. is it roger fully uh you, you know you I, want... I i met him at LCW. Well, i met him before years ago but i like sat down and talked to him a couple times at lcw still don't know how to say his last name <laughs> but, it's, but yeah brian bridger <laughs> is how i would say it uh he's he's a poet um and uh, uh critic i don't know if he i mean he's like a proper proper actual like elbow patch wearing professor so I, I don't know if he would consider himself a scholar but i think of as being kind of a a critic of contemporary poetry so he wrote this essay called To Crawl Under the Earth, which is from a line by David Mason. Uh, and the, the subtitle is The Persistence of Expansive Poetry. He takes sort of three um, exemplary poems that he examines, one being David Mason's uh, long poem, The Country I Remember, a narrative, one being Marilyn Nelson's a Wreath for Emmett Till, and, uh, and then the last being uh, Lestraneo by, by my good friend uh, Ryan Wilson. And he he takes these up as examples of what he calls the expansive poetry, which it's not a term he coined. Here's the, here's his little intro um, on that term. Expansive poetry was an American literary movement of the 1980s that combined new narrative and new formalism. New formalism, which emerged first, involved the revival of meter and rhyme. It was widely discussed among poets, critics, and the literary public for whom modern poetry had come to seem either too narrow in its scope or too inscrutable in its style, Applauded by some and attacked by others for its use of form, new formalism reacted against the dominant practices of autobiographical free verse. Many poets within new formalism, however, insisted that narrative was also an integral part of their agenda. The movement was then renamed to reflect this narrative impulse. Um, and, and that right there, I think, is, is a very good explanation for why expansive poetry is not a good name for a movement and has not stuck in any meaningful way. Because among other things, it was decided by committee. Like there was like new formalism is not a term anybody love or most people I know love, but it is at least descriptive. It at least is like talking about a thing that you could say, oh, it's poets writing today or relatively recently who are writing 
with the regular use of meter. Like that is some new formalism means something. Expansive poetry just means new formalism plus. Like, like it, it's like it doesn't actually describe or, or apply to anything. So uh, despite his, I think, extremely uh, thoughtful and, and well-researched efforts, I, I just think that it's not a term that has any legs to it at all. It's, it's not an arrogant term as well. I mean, it's an, exp an expansion in, in word. I mean, it's, I, I certainly don't think it's aesthetically expansive. I mean, um, he mentions the uh, autobiographical eye that new formalists are supposed to be reacting against. I think in almost all cases, new formalist lyric poetry is basically the autobiographical eye. It's just stripped of sort of the gloss and sort of anger and sort of uh, performative confrontationalism of, let's say, sort of the professional poetry of the 1950s to 70s. I, I think new formalism, lyric new formalism, and, and, and therefore lyric expansive poetry is totally about the autographic, autobiographical eye. Just sort of the autobiographical ice um, fitted into sort of um, fitted into a cage of meter instead of badly written or prosaic free verse. But then obviously, I guess the expansiveness could also refer to the narrative aspect, which which is fair. The, 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 the um the the accurate points that he makes in the essay is that narrative has gone out of poetry. I, for one, am not very upset that narrative has gone out of poetry or is is not as as popular as it once was. Mainly yeah. because I think it is very hard to write narrative poems that are still poems. Yeah. What, why do you think that? Well, I, I, I don't believe in Poe's essay at all. But I think it's very, it, there is a, an, easy an, easy, an easy weakness from a lot of narr narr narrators to fall into using language as a means to tell a story and therefore um, not pay heed to the idea that language should be an end in itself and therefore language fails to sort of deepen and complicate itself and therefore we bec it becomes basically prose in my view. I mean, I, I don't think this is the problem with all narrative poetry. I think a, I think a lot of good narrative poetry exists. I, I haven't read the David Mason. I really like the the Ryan Wilson poem and I, I'd say that definitely is a poem. Um, I haven't read the, the, the Marilyn poem. I think there are also very good poems in the part. I mean, the, the the old epic poems, Virgil, the Iliad, the Odyssey, are definitely poems, and I think you know some of yeah, the yeah. best poems ever written in any language. So they certainly, whatever narrative. I mean, uh, as, with, know, as with like poem. dramatic poetry for, for yeah, yeah, many, yeah, many of hundreds of years. Yeah, but I also think that a lot of poetry, a lot of this poetry that he talks about, will probably be Parnassian again. I think it will be prose thought draped in in meter and rhyme, and I think there will be a weak uh, uh, but this poetry will give way to an impulse to. Just because a, a story is recounted metrically, therefore it will be a poem. I, I don't think I think that will or that has occurred in much of the expansive poetry he will talk about. But certainly not in, not in all cases. I'm not trying to say that. Uh, as I said, you can't have. It's not you can't have narrative in poetry. I just think it becomes much harder. Yeah, I I I, am, I, I while in, I enjoy some some narrative and honestly, like most of the poems, most of the mid-length poems I enjoy are not, I would say, exactly narrative. Like the Venetian Vespers, which is which is a celebrated example by Anthony Hecht, I uh, like I find the narrative elements of that to be kind of the least exciting. Like the like as a narrative, it's not it, it feels a little bit like an O. Henry story. I mean, which is fine. O. Henry stories are great in their way, but but like it's the it's the lyric and imagistic parts of that poem that I find most thrilling. And similarly like with his other with the short end or the grapes, which I which I really love, those poems are both mostly kind of lyric 
panoramas more than they are proper narratives. And Ryan, Ryan in Lostraneo and Authority has two honest to God narratives, which is remarkable. Where like things happen in a forward direction, but I think that's relatively rare. And like I don't mind that that mostly happens in prose these days. I think that's fine. I like prose narratives as well. So I, I'm with you in like not feeling a pain at that having disappeared as a as a popular mode he presents let me jump in sorry let me yeah, just yeah, jump please, in please, there please. Yeah, and yeah. say that i probably feel a pang that you don't feel okay. that the type of poetry that they quote unquote are weary of isn't present much more much nowadays actually i'm gonna amend that statement i don't feel a pang that poetry isn't around because most of it was badly written i'm talking about um the sort of modernist epic that they mention ezra pound's cantos t.s mm. the wasteland yeah, i guess yeah. what i really mean is i feel a pang that no one's writing modernist epics with the same sort of virtuosity as Ezra Pound or Eliot. But then also I realized that, you know, I can't feel a pang because I don't really feel a pang that, you know, uh, Louis Zerkowski isn't around trying to write more of A or something. I, there's right. As many as, there, you know, as much as there were a few very good modernist epic poems, there are also quite a few, quite, you know, the vast majority again were bad. So maybe I don't feel a pang about that. But I certainly am not weary of this um, modernist fragmentation that these guys, these um, the expanded poets that Roger says in the opening of his essay when he talks about how, you know, they're tired of modernist fragmentation. I'm tired of, I'm tired of a, like a belief and a sort of autobiographical lyric eye that isn't fragmentated in, in metrical poetry. I, metrical poetry has become so Georgian in its tastes nowadays. I think that I, I, I I'm the complete opposite to these guys. And maybe we can get to that later because I think you sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. poetry written in other languages that was metrical was very different. But you right. know, I, I, I don't. I guess I don't feel a pang for that for the modernists. But I certainly, I certainly am coming from this from a modernist perspective, while these guys seem to be coming from it from a, from a Georgian perspective, right? Yeah, and, and characterize Georgian poetry for us, if you will. Like sure. So George, Georgian poetry was um, the poetry that sprung up between the, the, the sort of the cramp period between the end of the fin the uh, circle uh, decadent movement of late 19th century Victorian verse and the beginning of the modernist sort of the rise of Ezra Pound and Eliot they they were sort of um they sort of existed mainly between um the between for about 10 20 years they were very popular you had a lot of Georgian yeah. antho anthologies at the beginning of the 20th century the the great critic the great critic F R Levis or Levis who I'm I'm reading a book of I'm reading one of his books right now I think he's really good so he's talking about um poetry just before the First World War and he, he the whole point of this argument is that he detests late Victorian style when original talent of a minor minor order does manifest itself as for instance in Mr A Houseman or though the collocation the collocation is unfair to Mr Houseman Rupert Brooks it is apt to exert a disproportionate influence. The books of Georgian verse abound with tributes, more or less unconscious to these two poets, not to, not to insist on R. L. Stevenson's part. Indeed, it was largely in terms of them that the Victorian's bequest of habits and conventions was brought up to date. So yeah, the Georgian, uh, if A. Houseman and well, Rupert, I don't think anyone really reads Rupert Brooke anymore for no. sort of great poetry. But let's say, let's say Houseman. Yeah, I mean, he, he's the, what, he's what I mostly think of when I think of Georgian poetry. He's also yeah, one of my one of my favorite poets. Yeah. He's the best Georgian poet by far. Sure. So good that I don't even I don't think he is really a Georgian poet. I just think he's <laughs> an incredibly good poet. 
put sort of that's sort of the, the the Georgian poets after him are very bad or at least very bland boring imitators of Houseman. And I think there is a lot of similarity when you look at it between sort of contemporary metrical poetry. Especially type the metrical poetry you might see on a rated fair and Georgian poetry. Right. So, but it, I mean, just just to give people some idea, like if you were to try to imitate a Hausman, which I which I have consciously and unconsciously done as long as I've been writing poetry, you would be aiming for what characteristics? You'd be aiming for a simplicity of music, a clean, clean syntax, uh, crisp construction, a kind of a, a, a sharp lyric poignancy, you know. Uh, a, a, sub, you know, a subdued but powerful emotional style, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and I, those are all mostly still virtues to which I aspire, which may just make me a, you know, a, a bad, bad neo Georgian. But I, I guess, like, do you think those qualities or the aspiration to those qualities are what most characterize people writing in form today? The poetry people writing form today. I, I, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot because none of those qualities are bad. I mean, all those qualities are very good in and of themselves, right? And I certainly aspire to many of them. But I think, yes, that coupled with a sort of completely unfragmented or at least uncomplicated lyric autobiographical voice, if you add those qualities together, you will get the typical poet um, poem written by someone writing most of their poetry in metered rhyme. It's, okay. To me, reading like meter and rhyme in poetry, it's as if one had not at all sort of taken in the 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 tradition of Eliot or Jones or or even some of the later American writers like the, the um Open or uh, you know George Open or any any or any sort of the um the more modernist influence side of literature. They'd just gone straight from Houseman to Larkin. I think also Larkin was is probably a very helpful way of getting yeah, 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 yeah. see what sort of neo-formalists are aiming for. And as I say earlier, someone says one neo-formalist sort of um, chap um, proudly boasted that Larkin had killed modernism. And they certainly mm-hmm. think Larkin led to a very unhealthy turn in English verse where a lot of Larkin imitators sort so of let's, yeah, let's, let's characterize sort of linguistic invention. So, and, and to give, you know, to put it in the ear of anybody who might not already know a quick uh, Hausman I think it's unnamed epitaph poem would be here dead lie we because we did not choose to live and shame the land from which we sprung life to be sure is nothing much to lose but young men think it is and we were young and then a quick houseman they fuck you up your mom and dad they do not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you but they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy turn and half at one another's throats uh, man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. So Larkin clearly has some of the uh, son of Ho- some of Hausman's DNA, but he's a little more tart, a little more so, um, immersed in the social world. Uh, he's not quite as like lost in the Shropshire fields. He's a little more aware of modernity, and and in addition to his cynicism, he. He does play fast and loose at times with meter and rhyme. Like, I mean, High Window is another one of his most famous poems, rhymes kids with diaphragm. So it's not like it, it's, it, he's not as much of a formal purist as Hausman was. But, but yeah, also, I I, but, but also is, it was a bad influence, I guess, because I mean, I would say like what, what characterizes both of those quotes and makes me cautious about reading them in my free time ever these days is that they both have really infectious styles, infectious voices. 
and they like it's easy to find yourself accidentally imitating them yes i can see that i i don't think i i don't think that is a problem i have that much <laughs> but like i i mean i no with the, i mean i have that problem with many poets sure, but sure, i'm sure, trying yeah. to say not I, that's not a problem i have sure, with sure, larkin yeah. you know and again i don't think larkin or houseman are the problem i dislike larkin more than i dislike houseman and i but i think both of them are poets you can you would have a very bad hard time arguing were bad i don't I, they are both poets of of tremendous talent i just mm -hmm. don't i don't like or very much read either of them but um and i really dislike what larkin stood for aesthetically but both of them what, and what did he stand for aesthetically because he was he was well, the, the 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 marquee name associated with the movement movement yeah but he also wasn't he wasn't sort of the, the he was the figurehead of the movement but he wasn't sort of there central aesthetic um aesthetic pronouncer I, but, but what did so you say you, you disliked what he stood for aesthetically so what was that yeah i mean i mean that's the um the myth kitty statement about how every poem should be its own freshly created universe and should never take up illusion from other poets um he, he yeah, compares yeah. that to sort of a myth kitty um he agrees with agrees with reginald Dwayne betts there does he though original i really i i liked and disagreed with that um that Manifesto by Reginald yeah. Dwayne Betts. Well, he said, he said no more no more allusions to dead poets. So right. he was saying he was speaking more about dead poets rather than rather than myth in general. Yeah. Yeah. He also says so he say um pay homage, but and then he. Uh, I don't think he says negative. pay homage, but he, he, means, sure he says there's some something. elements that were that were seemed self contradictory, and I and mm. I disagreed with a lot of it, but I did enjoy it, um, and I just liked its style. Uh, oh yeah, it was so, it was a, fr a brilliantly refreshing style. Like I I want more of that. So there are some of the aesthetics Larkin stood for. He also said he never read any poetry in translation, which I find like hor nightmarishly horrifying as a sort of aesthetic conservatism. But um, yeah. I I think again it's sort of the poets that he surrounded was surrounded by the impact of sort of the movement, which really sort of said it was the democratic voice of the people and didn't like modernism's elitism, even though the movement was sort of a bourgeois middle class group of men with their own complaints. And their poet, their poetry again is destroys any chance of language sort of deepening and complicating itself for a, a kind of accessibility or at least sort of a, an interest in meter and rhyme above sort of modernist play and fragmentation. And and obviously the Georgians came before the modernists. But again, what I'm trying to say is around Houseman and around Larkin orbit these sort of poetic factions that I dislike and I think have had a tremendously bad impact upon contemporary metrical poetry. And that have strongly influenced and strongly influenced the new formalists and the expansive mm. poets when they came along. So yeah, like they were both associated with reaction, even if they were not most exemplary of that impulse. Yeah. That seems probably true enough. I do think that if like it sounds like much of your objection to contemporary uh, formal poetry is that it is prose draped in verse or that it is just the kind of lazy expression of a, an autobiographical lyric i like both of those descriptions apply pretty broadly to most free verse poetry today you know in america at least do they don't they of course of course yeah most free verse poetry is, is bad right yeah. but i mean like bad in those like bad with those qualities too like it doesn't seem yeah, like exactly. that's a it doesn't seem like that's a a, a a criticism of contemporary formal poetry it seems like that's a criticism of contemporary american poetry Yes, but I'd say that because contemporary formal poetry attempts to sort of talk about how it's something new and also often seems to 
seems to believe in some aspect that it is poetry because it defines itself as meter and rhyme, that those points seem particularly to stand out. I think a lot of right. a lot of problems bad with free verses because content and self-expression is privileged above expressiveness, which again is, creates Parnassian elements. But I think it comes to being Parnassian from a slightly different uh, from a slightly different trajectory to um, modern metrical poetry. Maybe. Just just to I mean I don't remember the lecture well enough, but like wh- why did why did Parnassian like like get like get saddled with this particular uh uh significance like like what is it about parnassus that 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 evokes prose draped in verse like what uh, yeah i don't i, don't, I, like need, the, I read the, mountain I, of the muses the mountain of apollo i don't yeah i need to read um i need to read hopkins he's he 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 seems when he first comes up with it he doesn't put it as like an inherently bad quality he just puts it as a sort of a lesser poetry so at first he says like poetry of inspiration where he sort of defines inspiration in a weird way to mean sort of poetry that is constantly surprising one by going in ways one could not predict he says if one if you pretended to be a sort of famous poet or like thought of yourself or fantasized about being a famous poet poetry written under at, in under the category of inspiration would be poetry you wouldn't be able to imagine yourself writing while Parnassian poetry and yeah i don't know why it's called Parnassian poetry would be poetry you could imagine yourself writing if you imagined yourself as a famous poet. I also like I was in a way I was grateful to be sent back to the Windhover by this lecture. It's a good lecture. It's called uh, "What You Look At." What you look hard at tends to look hard at you. Is that how it said? Yeah, yeah, Jeffrey Hill lecture he gave at Oxford. Uh, uh, the, the whole lecture is pretty pretty much about John uh, Manley Hopkins' poem, "The Windhover." Uh, which is, I mean, it's, I think it's like a great example of a poem I could not imagine myself writing, a poem that's extremely impressive, a poem that's that's definitely using language as an end in itself. It is it is an untranslatable poem. You would you would have to write a truly new poem in another language in order to translate it. And I can't speak ill of it in any way, except that I don't give a shit. Like I don't care at all. It feels so, <laughs> it feels so self-important. It feels so, like it's playful in the least playful manner. It like, here, I'll read it. I'll read it. And I'll try to read it well, because I think it is, again, it is impressive. Like I, I could not do this. I, I give him total credit for like, he, he has a great deal of talent and skill and whatever else. And like, I could not do this, but here at the Windover by Gerard Manley Hopkins dedicated to Christ, our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion. Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Root, beauty, and valor, and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier, no wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Can I read you what that immediately makes me think of? 
Sure. What, what I hear immediately when I start to read that poem is, I said a hip hop, the hippie, the hippie to the hip hop, hop, you don't stop the rocket to the bang, bang, boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie, the beat. That's what it sounds like to me, which again is like the Sugar Hill Gang is great. And like, that's great and fine. But the difference is that like, they know they're being silly. They know they're just goofing around with language and making sounds that that match together and bip and bop and play all over the you know your ear. And that's what he's doing, except that it's so deadly serious. I just, I can't, yeah. there's no, there's no human voice here. I can hear there's no perspective. Like even if, even if it's not a voice I could recognize in any kind of conversational way, it's not even like a mind that I recognize. Like even really? if it's, I, you know, even if it's speaking in elevated terms, like plenty of poems take place in a register or a, a mode that is a little bit beyond ordinary human speech, but there's still a mind at work that's recognizable here. I don't really, I can't follow the, the thought in any meaningful way. I mean, I can, I can track it if I sit down and make myself, but I don't pick up the sense. I don't sense the presence of a human mind. It's, it's interesting you say you don't sense the presence of a human mind, because I mean, I sense sort of a mournful human ecstasy in some of the phrasing, if I'm going to be sort of approaching from your perspective, like when he says, um, yeah. ah, my dear, full ghoul gash themselves. I mean, yes, it does share some verbal similarity with like like a rap song from the 1980s sure but i think i don't know i'm always swept away by the complete meeting of sound and like, sense of music i mean yeah. th there is for me, there tone? is no way yeah there is there's no there's no way to separate what he is saying from how he is saying it totally 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 and, it, totally and it's true. beautiful totally i mean it's it's so sad and and it's so sad and mournful and yet at the same time basically like orgasmic i i it really sort of this poem really blow, blows me away and i guess i don't know i am swept into the emotion of the thing i am swept into the emotion of he, him seeing um the wind hover or as jeffrey hill nicely amusingly <laughs> pointed out there's another word for it, it's a wind fucker yeah. yeah i'm really i'm really swept into the um the music of uh, the mood of seeing the wind fucker and then as, as it goes along, I'm swept into sort of the, 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 the religious contemplation tinged with this sort of ecstasy in the last line. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to reach you because I feel like we're so like on opposite sides of this little field. Sure, sure. But yeah, I don't know. I, it, everywhere, everywhere here where you sort of don't sense and don't give it, like don't give, give a fuck about this poem, I, I guess I'm just sort of incredibly swept up in it. So, so I, I was curious because, and obviously this is not an example of, of new formalist poetry. This is um, from over a hundred years ago. Uh, but yeah. you, um, you, this would, this would be a type of poem I wish new formalist poetry was trying to write. Well, that's what I was wondering because I think like your, your, your argument was that you wished the problem with formal poetry today is not a problem with form, but a problem with content. And, and here I wonder, is it, is this a question of a difference in content? or a difference in mm. style or voice? Because like he's writing about a hawk and like plenty of contemporary poets write about, or, or is, it, is it a kestrel a hawk? I guess it's a kind of hawk, uh, a bird of prey. Like he, sure. like plenty of contemporary poets do that. I mean, there's plenty of like, there are endless poems about birds of prey. Right. So that's right. not the problem. And nor is like bird of prey with religious, you know, overtones. Like th those those mm. things are certainly an abundance of like Christian poetry written in form and, and mm. nature poetry written in form. So it's not really subject matter in that sense, is it? What what does characterize the difference between this and 
And like your average, I mean, for example, like I think the, I, I would say like the very good um, Bill Coyle poem, Kilmartin Zoo, which I um, I read at one of the early episodes of this podcast. Can we um, read it again? Because this might get, we might, this could be a good chance for yeah. us to do a comparison. So, and I think Bill Coyle is also a, uh, a wonderful, um, wonderful practitioner. I mean, one of my favorite practitioners of the, of the plain style in contemporary formal poetry. So this is Cole Martin Zoo by Bill Coyle. I was also, also a bird of prey poem. So here, over our heads, trailing a wake of air and an enormous shadow as it passed, the falcon glided to its trainer's fist and settled like a loaded weapon there. Then, while she fed the bird bit after bit of what? Rabbit? The trainer gave her talk. These birds, she said, prey on the small and weak, adding for the children's benefit that this, though it seems cruel, is really good, since otherwise the other rabbits, mice, squirrels, what have you, would run out of space and die of illness or a lack of food. I know what she was trying to get across, and I don't doubt it would be healthier if we were more familiar than we are with how the natural world draws life from loss, and granted nothing is more natural than death incarnate falling from the sky, and granted it is better some should die, however agonizingly, than all, still, to teach children this is how things go is one thing. To insist that it is good is something else. It is to make a god of an unsatisfactory status quo. This vicious circle that the clock hands draw and quarter while the serpent bites its tail or eats the dust or strikes at someone's heel or winds up comprehended by a claw. She launched the bird again. We watched it climb out of the amphitheater, headed toward the darkened spires of a nearby wood, then bank, then angle toward us one last time. The difference here is not one of subject matter exactly, but it is one of the texture of the language. But I mean, is that is that a question of form then? I mean, it's not metrical form, but... It is and it isn't. Well, I mean, I think... there is a difference in metrical form because it's sprung rhythm versus eccentric mm. syllabic uh, meter. But it's um, iambic, isn't it? The uh, coil poem. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's very, yeah, very yeah. standard iambic pentameter. Is it in? Is it ABBA or A ABA? I couldn't. I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's it ABBA? A, ABBA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. All the very great poets that I love, style, subject matter, and style become incredibly hard to talk about separately. And mm. I think this is very clear in the winter. I I don't. I couldn't really imagine talking about the style without in some way talking about the subject matter and in su talking about the subject matter in some way becoming yeah, the style. Definitely. I mean, definitely. It, it, the poem is its own unique creature. I think the opening quatrain of Bill Coyle's poem is, does the same. I really like the opening quatrain. Um, uh, do you want to read it again? Just the, quad, the opening sure. quatrain? Over our heads, trailing a wake of air and an enormous shadow as it passed, the falcon glided to its trainer's fist and settled like a loaded weapon there. Yeah, there's a there's a beautiful clenchedness about Parson's fist. I mean, it's a half rhyme, and it's also a continental rhyme, isn't it? Because of the the Parson fist. Yeah. But the, the the way that that this clenched together, it, it and the fact that it's A B B A, mm -hmm. that is a beautifully clenched little stanza, a beautifully fist like stanza. But to me. The problem with the rest of the poem, in, intermittently, I think it does rise at times to sort of this, uh, a true sort of uh, uh, beyond Parnassian. The problem is, 
to me, it's one too long. It could be easy. He could easily compress it because to me, the plain style, the conversationalness draws into sort of prosaic territory too much. Hmm. I think the Hopkins poem everywhere is compressed this beautiful little unit of sound and, 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 and meaning. There is nothing, there is nothing, um, nothing else left to say and everything is said so cleanly, so beautifully, so precisely. Coyle's poem, it feels like it needs to sort of, um, it, it, it winds and unwinds itself and says itself and repeats itself a little and, and has to come round. It's very much a bit, it's like, it's human. It's what I, I think he's done is he's remembered his thoughts, probably in tranquility, because, you know, he probably didn't write it down as, as it happened, if it happened, which I, I presume it did happen. He remembered all his thoughts and put them in and set them masterfully into, te- into technique, right? He set them into technique, he put them into ABBA quatrains of, of iambic pentameter. So, you know, he the thoughts were all placed inside the technique. But for me, what he didn't do was then compress the language so it wasn't just the train of human thoughts in a rhyme in a, in rhyming poetry. It was language compressed to saying all the information as saying everything it could and saying it in the least amount of space least amount of space it takes without becoming cramped or crooked. He he didn't do that, and that's what Hopkins did, and to at times in the coil poem, I do feel that it becomes part national. I feel like it's prose looped on meter and rhyme, especially when, especially I think when he starts contemplating what the woman says, and how, and also when he talks about what the woman says about the um the feeding cycles of the of the bird upon the rabbit. It as soon as he in description and also later in sort of metaphysical um metaphysical or at least metaphoric imagism it's yeah. much more it's much brilliant it's much more i don't know it's much compressed it's more clever it says all it says with multifaceted images but when he comes down to contemplating it there's a sudden looseness a sudden prosaicness in there that i find boring yeah, it's funny because I, I, what, I, what I totally agree is that I think this is obviously way, way, way more translatable than Hopkins. Hopkins is to- totally, un- it would be meaningless to translate it, I would I'd say. Um, but yeah, you'd, have is, to, you'd have to be almost as good as Hopkins to translate well, you'd, it. I mean, right? you would just be like, you'd be doing, you might be doing a comparable thing, but it would be a different thing in a different language. Yes, yes, um, yeah. yeah. You'd have to have a, an a incredibly good knowledge of your own languages resources to try and... Right replicate um, and, and probably language. because you'd be replicating it it would end up being a little bit stale or corny right um, right yeah uh but yeah so I, I think like this is definitely way more of a translatable argument um and and i think you're right that the the pure description at the beginning and the um higher conceit that he arrives at with that that you know that second to last stanza the vicious circle that the clock hands draw in quarter while the serpent bites its tail or eats the dust or strikes at someone's heel or winds up comprehended by a claw that does get denser and harder to translate and it's the, it's Com- the... comprehended by a claw well what a glorious phrase comprehended oh, by great. a claw yeah, all that's that a great, says, like all that says in in yeah all that all it says in those smaller words but i just want to add quickly that i don't want to i can see the how, where i can trip myself up here by making me sound as if I just dislike not conversational poetry because I dislike conversational poetry, but I dislike any poetry that isn't just pure description or pure imagism. Sure. I've been um, rereading Frank O'Hara recently, and he isn't conversational exactly. He certainly isn't in um, uh, Meditations in an Emergency, and he is 
maybe in a way conversational in lunch poems, but not in a or not in the sort of same way as Bill Coyle. But I think he does a brilliant way of compressing his language into these little slabs of poems, but also retaining a sort of spontaneous sponta- spontaneity and movement of thought that seems alive and accurate to the a sort of conversational consciousness. I think so. I don't want to trip myself up by suggesting that I'm only interested in poetry that is sort of, I don't know, revelatory or imagistic or inspirational sure. or any of that bullshit. Yeah. I, I think Frank ha- Frank O'Hara is a brilliant um, example of how to do a, a kind of confrontational musing consciousness in a compressed style. Yeah, I mean, and there are plenty of like hyper-compressed poems that I love that truly couldn't be any shorter. I even think that that uh, the the... The Aaron Pachigian poem for Alan Sullivan is is about as perfect a little tiny tiny poem as you. Oh can. yeah, that's that's quite good. Right. Um, let me see if I have it because it was a memory about Alan Sullivan, uh, who's a poet who it's died. On the Poetry Foundation. And it's um, I think I have it. Uh, because he was as hard to handle as truth, which we equate a light, go somewhere dark and light a candle for Alan Sullivan tonight. Right. That that couldn't be any shorter. Um, and and I, there's certainly like a lot of poetry I, I love like that, and I and I'm with you in thinking that like in terms of the the construction of the phrase, you know, winds up comprehended by a claw is probably the best bit in this poem. But I guess I also tend to think, and this may be because of like a theater background to some extent, that I I end up liking a little bit of build and looseness. Like I I like that not all of the moments in the poem have exactly the same pitch. There's a thing that people used to say in, in like acting classes where they'd say you're playing the end of the scene, meaning like you start screaming and like playing, like you hit the, the peak of your emotion at the beginning of the scene and you have nowhere to go. And I think that there are, there was a, a poet in my MFA program who was super talented, like definitely one of the most talented people, if not the most talented people in the program and uh, really, really hardworking, like very dedicated, brilliant guy. But he his point, he like he couldn't unclench his fist. Like every single line was so cram, 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 cram packed with sonic and and syntactical and denotative cleverness that it just like his poems were like a brick wall. And I remember Ryan at one point said to him like, you know, it may be that like not every line in your poem can be the peak of the mountain. Like in order for there to be a peak to the mountain, we need somewhere to build from. And I don't, I think his response to that ultimately was that he quit writing poetry and he started painting. And like that's, he's do, he's like a <laughs> wonder, he's like a wonderful painter. He's like, he's a really terrific painter. But I think like it, it, I know there is an appetite. I know there are people, including you, who, who seem to sort of love poems like that, that have no, that never uh, go loose or slack. And I think, I think I, I enjoy a poem that, like, I, I, I like those moments of extreme verbal Impression, but I tend to think that, like, if that were the whole poem, it would be unreadable. But, like, part of what I, I enjoy the winding, uh, meditative portion of this poem, but if the whole poem were just that, were just flatly at the level of prose, I think it would be uh, far diminished. But if you tried to, and, I, and I'm not going to say this is a perfect poem, I'm not going to say you couldn't compress it some, but I think if you were to try to squeeze it down sort of purely into, you know, sonnet, sonnet length or even like, sonnet and a half length to, to try to avoid any dead air, any moments of, of kind of pause or over you know, like absent meditation. 
I think that that you would lose the you would lose the voice and you would lose the I mean part of the effect of the, the effectiveness of the poem is the control of tone is his ability to to keep a little bit of an arm's length from this and to, and to offer only a relatively small criticism like a small but pointed criticism that I think ends up having some real bite because because it's so soft spoken and I think like there's the thing about the thing about this is like you're right that this is definitely it's easier to get bored in this poem it's impossible to get bored in the windhover it's easier to translate this into prose it's impossible to translate the prose into into um the, the windhover into prose but the windhover at times reads like an email that's written in all caps you're just like god almighty yeah. just relax man just fucking relax and that's i think with, with cold martin zoo i think like it may be some of it is just like a matter of like what degree of tolerance we have for one one right. vice or virtue or the other. I think you're saying the uh, you're saying the wind hover sounds like like a Donald Trump tweet. <laughs> <laughs> his his uh, he has superior grammar, uh, though <laughs> though Donald Trump at times you know is really real inventive with the language comes up with <laughs> real innovations. Wow, we're, we're we're incredibly clever literary critics. We've uncovered we deep connections. Unknown to everyone else <laughs> between Donald Trump and Jared Manley Hopkins. Yeah. yeah, I feel very gratified. Um, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm not, I feel both very much penetrated by what you say because I certainly think you are pointing out things that I cannot disagree with. I think any good poetry should have different, well, not any good poetry, but I certainly think good poetry should have different levels of pitch. Mm-hmm. And I also think that I, I'm certainly a culprit of writing poetry that tries to cram everything into every line. I mean, um, when you when you get a, a thing of ramen, do you just do you just crack open the uh, the little flavor packet and just dump it dry into your mouth? Is that, is that how you eat? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Maybe. Um, what Dan Chiasson? Dan Chiasson says, in, uh, is it Dan Chiasson? I don't know. I've never heard, heard anyone say his someone name. Told me cha- someone told me Chasen is how you say it, but I don't know. Chasen. Yeah, I know it makes no sense okay. phonetically. Yeah. Okay, let, let's let's do it that way. Dan Chasen in the New Yorker um, once said of Ishan Hutchinson that he tries to write every line like its own poem. Mm-hmm. I think that is true, and it, and he also um, isolated some examples where that fell off. He said this was also true of Whitman, which I'm not completely sure of, but certainly yeah. I I think he might have a point. Um, but I, yes, there definitely should be different levels of pitch. And I, I feel simultaneously like I want to disagree with you in that I'm not asking for this poem to abandon all different levels of pitch. I also want to, I also feel and maybe feel more deeply that you are in some ways right and that I am in some ways flawed. But I certainly think you could compress this poem without le- leaving levels of pitch. I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think this is a perfect poem. And I think it's probably yeah. a less. Well, I think it's definitely a less accomplished poem than the Windhover. Like it is a I mean, less that, purely achieved version of itself than the Windhover is. There are there are different levels of pitch in the Windhover. The first eight lines, I think, are pitched at a different level to the next. Um, to the sestet, I think the sestet falls right. off a little and then builds up again. But I, I think there yeah. is a certain different. I mean, it's a little talent. bit like, but that's again, it's like the first the the first part is in all caps, and then the. The second part is in all caps and boldface. <laughs> all right, you're like, oh, I, I didn't realize I was I was actually going easy in the first part. Yeah, Fair I mean, enough. but they sure they, there's there's some there's some modulation there. Um, but you know, I mean, but this, I, some of it may just be a, a, a difference in in taste as well as like maybe a difference in taste at different periods of life. Like I, I found like mm, I don't even yeah, mean yeah. in terms of like 
people sometimes use that as a way to say young people have bad taste. I don't think that's true. I think like my ability to watch certain kinds of violence on movies has like changed once I had kids. Like, like even when Joanna right. was pregnant, we went to see the hunger games, like watching kids run around stabbing each other. It's like a PG 13 movie that was made for teenagers. And like, I, I was having like heart palpitations. So yeah, I think, I think like some yeah, of it may yeah. just be t taste and time of life and whatever else. Uh, and I, was, I mean, you've read and read poetry much longer than I have. So you, I mean, even if you're not trying to use it in a negative way, which I'm sure you're not, it may, may, it may well be true that you certainly have a mature taste than I do. And I, like, I, I willingly accept that, but also, I, I mean, I can't do anything about that apart from oh, yeah, soldier yeah, yeah. on and try and like firm up my own poetics. Well, no, but, so but I'm guess, also a big you know. believer in like timeliness, right? Mm, like mm. I, there's a, there were periods in my life when I, uh, when I would stay out all night drinking with friends and like, <laughs> like, I don't think that was bad and I should not have done that, but like, I, it definitely doesn't make sense for me to do that now. You know, I just think like they're different, they're different, maybe different pleasures at different times. My other problem, my, my big problem is not that if, this if there were like the the bill is it his name's Bill Coyle right if mm -hmm. if yeah. there were the the Bill Coyles of new formalism say versus the Jared Manley Hopkins that, yeah good nice yeah we 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 like diversity you know we'll we'll have we'll <laughs> diversity so, you know it, it's good but I don't know there is minute minute differences but that poem on a whole is a very good representation of almost all the voices active in in the group of poets who write mostly metrical and rhyming poetry today yes so so that and i think i think a very accurate criticism i might call it even just an observation but like a, an accurate criticism of a lot of like very good new formal poetry today or for, you know poetry written in meter in america today is that it could be like it's it's fungible that there's yeah. that you can't necessarily identify the voice one to the next i mean i think there are like Stallings has a particular set of concerns and she has some formal knacks, like her tendency to play with uh, cliche, opening up cliche in new ways, I think is is not unique to her, but it, she tends to do it a little differently and a little better than most people. But I think like, you know, like most formal poetry, if it's well done, I mean, especially if it's well done, in a way, like when it's worse is when it's easier to see the the identity of the poet like when it's really well done often what that polishing leads to is a kind of a polishing beyond the personal voice or identity of the poet that was our show <laughs> sorry again sam gwen and aaron Pachinko. oh man uh you <laughs> Uh, apparently the link for Cameron's Eratosphere uh, ID is not working, but he's WT Clark on Eratosphere if you'd like to go torch him on there. And uh, if you have anything angry to say to me, you can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.